a gentleman who literally was asleep in his car, ended up handcuffed behind his back, locked into a police vehicle, and ended up being shot. Welcome to AI Decodes the System podcast. AI Decodes the System is a series of podcast interviews with industry experts and everyday people who will help explain topics related to policy, tech, data, law, and other current issues in plain language. The goal of this podcast is to help close the knowledge gap in a world where misinformation is growing and to help us decode the system. Sit back and enjoy the show. Malcolm P. Ruff is a former Baltimore City and Baltimore County prosecutor and a newly named partner at Murphy, Falcon & Murphy. The firm represents victims of catastrophic personal injury and civil rights violations. As an aggressive and passionate advocate, Malcolm often represents victims of police brutality. He is a husband, a father of four, and an active member in the community. Hello, Malcolm. Welcome to the show. Hey, Amber. How are you? Thank you so much for inviting me uh, to have this conversation with you. No problem. It's great to talk to you again, Malcolm. And before we get started, I just want to say congratulations for two things. One, you had a new baby, bringing your total to four. (laughs) that's exciting i come from a family of four so i love this like i'm always like have all the kids this is great for them they you can have they have people to play with and you don't have to worry about them they love it they're enjoying uh their new uh little brother and we we're just very very happy he came into the world healthy and happy Uh, so thank you so much (laughs) no problem and then the second thing i wanted to congratulate you on is you became a partner at a major law firm which is a major accomplishment how are you feeling right now man i'm very very blessed and happy uh ecstatic i mean you know i feel a lot of responsibility because uh, as you know our firm is a major boutique firm um one of the biggest black owned firms probably in the nation far as what we have accomplished, not necessarily in size. And it's just great to be a part of that history. I've been following my firm since I you know, started law school and even before then growing up in Baltimore. We have a strong history of advocating for the people of Baltimore City, for the citizens of Maryland um, and all over the country. I feel very honored and blessed to be able to be in this position to stand up for, for the rights of people right here in my hometown. That is amazing. And today I want to talk about one of those cases, one of your most recent cases, actually. Uh, The case involved William H. Green, who was shot six times. Let me repeat that. He was shot six times while handcuffed in the front seat of a police vehicle in Prince George's County, Maryland. You were key in negotiating a $20 million settlement for his family, one of the largest settlements ever in a case involving a killing by a police officer. I remember thinking, how does a person who is handcuffed behind their back get shot six times? So I want to start by asking you, how does a handcuffed man in a police vehicle end in a $20 million settlement? Right. Uh, Man, that's a a loaded question because obviously something like that does not happen in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Um, it, It doesn't just happen by chance. Um, And and I think that that is a major reason why we were able to prevail upon the county to resolve this and resolve it quickly uh, and equitably for the family of William Green, who was, uh, by all accounts of everyone that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to over 30 members of his family about him, he was a a man who was a giver, someone who uh, certainly no one deserves to be slain in the streets by a police officer for no reason, but somebody who, who just never, no one never saw this happening to. 
Um, so there were a lot of events um, that led up to William Green ultimately being uh, shot six times by Corporal Michael Owen. One of the major factors, I would say, a lack of oversight within the Prince George's County Police Department. Um, this officer had so many incidents of using force that was not necessary against citizens of Prince George's County in our eyes. Um, and obviously, I, I'm sure the county would not you know, espouse that. Um, but we did a comprehensive investigation. I think we, we put in over 200 hours uh, in running down exactly how we got here. And we found in our investigation numerous folks over this officer's 10-year career who said that he had treated them in a way that was either um, certainly police misconduct, but to the levels of police brutality, people who he actually put his hands on, oh, wow. um, who had done nothing, uh, he had no probable cause to do so. Additionally, this officer had some issues as far as his mental capacity was concerned. Um, I think the evidence shows that he had an issue with a previous shooting early in his career um, that was affecting him. Um, and the police department, unfortunately, was unaware of it uh, by their accounts. Um, that is simply unacceptable uh, for a police department to allow someone who has issues with, with their mental capacity uh, to be walking around the streets with a service weapon interacting with citizens of, of, of their of their jurisdiction. And ultimately, this officer had been flagged the year previous to the shooting of, of William Green for oh, wow. numerous uses of force in, in a short period of time, which is oftentimes an indicator of an officer who is in distress or who is having issues. He had been flagged and was supposed to have met with his superior officers so that they could sit down with him and review these incidents. Um, and to determine whether there was some action they needed to have taken. Um, and that meeting never happened, though he was flagged over six months prior mm -hmm. to the shooting of William Green. Um, the, the amount of evidence that is that was out there prior to us even filing a lawsuit uh, was m massive. And it was necessary to, to gather all this information because of the high standards that, that are established in the law for holding a municipality responsible for even a very obvious, terrible and horrific shooting like this. A, a gentleman who literally was asleep in his car and by all accounts, he was inebriated, ended up handcuffed behind his back, locked into a police vehicle and ended up being shot at point blank range to his death. Hey, AIPAC community, I hate to be a glitch in the system, but I think now is the perfect time for you to screenshot the podcast on whatever device you're using. Yes, that's right. Screenshot it, upload it, and tag AI Decodes, that's A-I-D-E-C-O-D-E-S, and then share it with your networks. Super simple. And now back to the show. So it's interesting because I remember hearing about the case early this year because I believe it happened in January. But honestly, I'm pretty sure most people outside of the D.C. metro area haven't really heard about this case. And to the contrary, there have been several other police-involved shootings that have occurred, and they've received national attention, even um, some like the case of George Floyd, which actually garnered international attention. Here, a man was shot, like you said, while handcuffed in a police vehicle, and the fact that it started with him being asleep in his car and then ending in a death, which ultimately ended in a settlement for his family, most people don't even know about that. Why do you think this one 
this one case didn't receive the same attention? Well, I, I think I've been saying this since since the day it happened, that, that this case was never going to get the attention it deserved, especially if the case was handled appropriately by the county, which I believe um, to, to the extent that they could, they handled this mm-hmm. um, as appropriately as they, as they felt that they could. But the, the main factor of why I feel this case did not get national media attention or, or, or much attention uh, based, you know, congruent to the seriousness and, and devastating nature of, of what happened um, is simply that the officer in this case was, was African-American, um, is African-American. Um, and in our society, in, in, in our culture and in, in our purview right now, collectively, you know, black on black police violence um, is not something that we uh, find uh, as offensive. Um, not something that we feel needs to garner attention. And I think at the end of the day, we all need to realize that the thin blue line is no respecter of race. um, Black police officers since the dawn of of integration of police forces have been pressured immensely to emulate the the white supremacist culture of police forces. Um, they've been pressured, threatened with losing their jobs, threatened with not being on the inner circle, threatened with l- not being promoted. You look in Prince George's County right now, there's a lawsuit by several officers of color because um, they feel they've been discriminated against. And that is a, a direct evidence of that type of culture. So oftentimes black officers emulate the same culture that white officers have against uh, people of color. And there is no reason to feel that is less significant when a person of color is violated, their civil rights are violated, their life is taken from them, especially simply because the officer was not of another race. I would reckon that um, if Officer Corporal Owen had been a white officer, um, this case would have gotten more attention than George Floyd um, because the, the facts of the case are simply more terrible. I mean, they're just that much more horrific. Um, I mean, Mr. Green could not defend himself. Um, The autopsy revealed that there was no way that uh, he deserved to have been shot. Wow. And to be fair for the listeners and also to evoke a conversation likely, but that officer was arrested the very next day and charged the very next day, correct? That that too. Which is interesting, right? Uh, like I said, the, the, the county handled the situation uh, appropriately, um, and he was arrested right away. Right, He's been charged since less than 24 hours after he shot our client, Mr. Green, um, and he has been held without bail. He's attempted to get out multiple times. And the courts in Prince George's County have stood strong and said, no, you're a danger to society. Um, There's no way we were going to allow you to be on the streets while you're pending this trial. Um, And so he's set for trial coming up in the beginning of the year, uh, I want to say March. Wow. And the reason I brought that up was for two reasons. One, because a lot of these other cases where the officer is not a person of color, it tends, in my opinion, I could be wrong. So if I'm wrong, tell me. It tends to take longer. But in the cases that I look at across the nation that have a the police involved is a person of color. Those cases seem like that person is arrested quicker than in other cases. Do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, it it goes along the lines of of how black people are treated in this country on a daily basis. I mean, of course, um, we're going to be more highly scrutinized as black police officers 
black law enforcement officers uh, are going to, there's going to be a much more ready rush to judgment with black police officers just simply because of bias. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that black officers uh, who commit uh, acts of brutality are held accountable. And, and it seems that uh, white officers, are, there's much more hesitation and much uh, less fair and just results um, in investigations of, of white officers who brutalize people of color. Yeah, I, I agree with you that that it is it is not fair. There is no equity there. And, you know, I, I don't know how we will ever get to a place where both black officers and black people are treated equitably by the police without, you know, some serious uh, legislative reform, uh, especially here in Maryland. I'm glad you actually brought up the word legislative reform or the term. So as you know, this show is called AI Decodes the System because we want to break down different topics related to policy, technology, data, and law and other relevant topics that matter to folks. But today we're talking law and One of the things you brought up is very important because there are laws that protect police officers. So can you explain to the audience what the law enforcement officers bill of rights does legally to protect police and why you think it needs to be reformed? Absolutely. And this is a a topic that that has been, you know, hot in discussion, especially in the state of Maryland, but across the country um, since early, uh, early summer. The law enforcement officers bill of rights here in Maryland was the first type of law of its kind in the country. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. In the late 70s, right? So we set the standard for what you could really uh, view as um, due process plus or additional. Mm. So uh, think about the rights that are afforded to a person that's been charged with a crime. Police officers are afforded that much and then some. And and so the the argument um, for repealing the law enforcement officer's Bill of Rights really comes down to the fact that although police officers' duties and jobs are very dangerous and serious um, and and they take on a lot of responsibility, they should not then be afforded more rights than uh, everyday citizens that, you know, also have to go through their lives that are dangerous and and fraught with peril as well. Mm -hmm. So some of the ways that the LEOBR, um, and I'll just refer to it as that, protects police in a way that is unreasonable. Um, It completely prohibits independent investigation of any police misconduct. So it allows only for sworn police officers to investigate police officers. Now, you know, where I come from, we don't accept liability unless you prove it. Um, And so it's very hard to trust the integrity of investigations when the police are policing themselves. And you see from results, you look at the data of the vast majority of police complaints, although they they are numerous, are either determined to be unfounded or unsustained. And that finding simply means there was not enough weight one way or the other to determine whether this was a valid complaint. Mm. And I would say 90 plus percent uh, of police complaints in Maryland fall into those two categories. That just simply is is asinine to believe that 90% of the people who complain about the police uh, brutalizing them or, or acting in a way that is police misconduct are, are just, you know, lying or, or you know, telling falsehoods or, or just trying to talk bad about the police. It doesn't add up. So additionally, there are just arbitrary time limits on how long a person has to make a complaint. 
Um, it used to be 90 days. Mm. Um, legislators have, have been able to get it increased to uh, a year at this point. But even here in Maryland, the statute of limitations for filing a civil complaint is three years. Um, and it seems quite arbitrary that the police have a much more truncated amount of time before they can say, well, we wash our hands. It doesn't really matter what happened because you, you, you've you waived your right you know, due to the time you've allowed to pass mm. um, from the incident. It gives police officers specifically um, a five-day period where they're not allowed to be questioned at all. But during that five-day period, if they've been accused of misconduct, they get to receive all of the discoverable information about what they've been accused of. Um, so, okay, That's crazy. Correct. Right. Uh, imagine a criminal defendant uh, gets arrested and then before the detectives get a chance to you know, grill him, um, they hand him all of their investigatory documents and say, hey, before we, uh, we, before we put you in the hole, uh, take a look at this stuff. And uh, and then and then we'll then we'll talk. Right. <laughs> right? Um, that would be a major advantage to any criminal defendant. Um, and so that is what is afforded to police officers. Police chiefs also under LEOBR have the unilateral ability to prohibit the public from attending public administrative hearings, mm. and they have the unilateral ability to overrule any decision that's made by an administrative hearing board that passes down discipline uh, against an officer. Oh, wow. So, you know, what's the purpose of he- even having an administrative board if there's this catch-all where the police chief can just say, you know, I don't agree, and we're going to reinstate? It also somehow allows the Fraternal Order of Police which is not a part of the police department, of any police department, they have the ability to basically veto any final disciplinary action that's been determined by an administrative board as well. So again, why have administrative boards? And and, and then the even more egregious part is that the administrative boards then are also all appointed by the police chiefs, right? So... Um, there, there's no oversight. There's no accountability. And, and then just is the fact that the Maryland Public Information Act does not allow anyone the right to request personnel documents of any officer. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you can have disciplinary actions that happen that were overridden by a police chief, but no one will ever be able to scrutinize that information because police can say we don't want to allow you to have this. It allows for expungement of formal complaints if they result in unfounded or unsustained. Um, and as we, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know that category of unsustained cases in Maryland is completely uh, warped mm-hmm. and cannot be possibly true. And if it had been investigated by third parties, would would be much smaller in my eyes. And then another thing it does is allows police chiefs. Uh, it, it prohibits police chiefs from suspending an officer in an emergency basis unless they've been charged with an actual felony. For instance, I have a case where an officer uh, in West Baltimore uh, accused my client of assaulting him, um, resisting arrest, being disorderly, and accused him of starting a fight with him, you know, just out of nowhere. Um, The officer's body camera footage actually revealed that it was the officer who started the fight, the officer who, who threw the first blow, and a six-month mm-hmm. uh, period of time went went by before any of this was corrected. My client had been in jail for wow. multiple months. Um, and and this officer, according to the LEOBR, still would have the right um, to be paid mm. uh, while he's on leave, waiting his criminal charges for misconduct and false statement now that the, that the video has come out. 
but he's still being paid because the LEOBR protects him in that way. You still get paid. That doesn't make sense. That's tax dollars going to a man who lied on record and, and had no problem. That's a different level of job security. Correct. It, it is a codified collective bargaining agreement. And no other governmental entity in the state of Maryland right. has their collective bargaining agreements codified into law. That is wild to me because as I'm listening to that, I'm like, if that was any other job, and like you said, even if we just go straight to the government, that would not be allowed to happen. That person would have been fired for doing something or at least pulling them back and suspending them or something would have happened. So it's just interesting how all these little pieces are put in place to protect police. Granted, like you said, I know police have a tough job. My brother was a police. I know police officers. So I understand their job is tough. But when you take what you call due process plus and you take due process of what we all get and then add layers that can present a problem and can cause a need or cause issues to happen, which we're seeing across the country. And I know for me, like when I was watching at the beginning of the summer, everyone was talking about police reform and enacting laws to change what happened to several unarmed people in this country at the hands of those who promised to protect and serve us, the police, right? What do we need to do to get this back on the mind of lawmakers? Because something has to change. We can't keep allowing these different acts to occur under the protections of the law. Absolutely. Um, We have to organize. Um, We we have to make sure that our voices are heard and and we have to be educated. Um, You know, at the end of the day, we all want to be safe. Um, We all want to live in neighborhoods where we are protected. Um, but we all want to be able to exercise our, our rights. Um, and our collective rights are, ex- are at stake if we don't hold the police accountable. Um, so we, we shouldn't have to wait for another devastating event to occur or someone else's mother, brother, father, sister, cousin, uncle uh, to lose their life um, before we make sure that lawmakers are addressing uh, the needs of the people. Um, so we need to be getting in these folks' ears and having conversations with them, um, especially on the state level. Number one, what I would say is um, we need to support the trusted voices that we have in Annapolis. Um, and, and I'm not just talking about the, the Legislative Black Caucus, but specifically within our caucus, um, we have some really, really strong uh, legislators who have their feet on the ground, um, have their ear to the ground and really have the pulse of the people and have a historical perspective of what has happened in Maryland, especially um, when we talk about the history of law enforcement in Maryland. Um, and I'm specifically talking about uh, Jill P. Carter, a, a senator who's my senator um, and out of Baltimore. And then uh, you also have uh, my man, Gabe Acevedo, who's over in the 39th district over, uh, he's a delegate over in Montgomery County. And then my brother, Eric Barron, who's a delegate down in Prince George's County. Um, They are a formidable team. Um, They deserve all the support and love that uh, uh, the Black community and and wider communities uh, can throw at them because they are really standing in the gap for people. They have been undergoing sessions this this summer and this this fall uh, on both sides of the government. Um, in uh, proposing legislation that's going to change and move the needle um, in, in the direction that we needed to go. 
Specifically, they are moving to uh, repeal the law enforcement officer's bill of rights Mm -hmm. that will be put before uh, our legislature this session. And it is my um, belief that it will pass. Um, It will be completely taken off of the books. And then we will begin the work of figuring out how to curtail police and and create accountability from third parties and independent investigators, um, but to still protect the rights that police do have. Um, Mm -hmm. But the additional piece that they really have have, um, pleased me with is what I was mentioning earlier, the Maryland Public Information Act is going to be not repealed, but reformed. Mm -hmm. And it will allow for police personnel records to be publicly uh, requested um, and police will not be able to shield that from the public any further. So that type of oversight and accountability is what we're looking for. And in order for us to make sure that all of our lawmakers understand what we want, it's really important to stand behind those three folks uh, in the state of Maryland, throw them support, uh, send them donations, because after January the 12th, they're not going to be able to receive donations any further. And they have needs that they have in their offices, uh, you know, and they're going to need the dollars for that. And then know that we also have to make it known what our positions are to the people that matter. Um, so you're talking about Luke Clippinger, who is a delegate. He is leading the House this year, and he will be instrumental um, in making sure that this legislation does pass. And if it does not pass, you know, that will be a travesty that, you know, I think should should deserve him not being in office anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the same goes for Senator Will Smith. They have to champion these bills through um, and these changes to the law. And so we need to be in their ear. Um, He's leading the charge on the Senate side. We need to make sure that our our voices are heard in his office, that we organize those voices together um, to make a loud chorus that um, this is not the time to punk out as has happened with police legislation in the past in Maryland. This is the time to stand up on it like a rock and do what's needed for the people. And the amazing thing is, since it was one of places where it started, right? Imagine if we can show the rest of the country how to do this and how to move forward. Absolutely. Repealing these different laws that have been on the books for some time now and haven't been helping folks. And one of the discussions that I often have with people is about what is legal under the law versus what we think should be legal under the law. The beauty about that is in our country, we have the ability to change and reshape laws to adjust whether it's like new evidence that shows us something different and we're able to change those laws. But at the end of the day, the law allows many things to occur that don't feel right, but they are still legal. What type of legal reforms do you think need to happen to reduce the number of police-involved shootings across the nation? Well, one of the reforms I think that, that should happen and may actually happen over time, the eradication. Uh, from from the books of of qualified immunity, the theory of qualified immunity, and, and can really, you explain what that is for the listeners? Well, I'm going to do my very best, <laughs> but, but ultimately, in the simplest terms, qualified immunity is a defense to allegation of of a violation of civil rights. So, for instance, if you allege that a police officer um, violated your Fourth Amendment right not to be uh, seized or, or arrested without probable cause, and that led to you 
um, you know, being injured physically, Mm -hmm. um, you could file a federal civil rights lawsuit against that officer. That officer could then assert a defense of qualified immunity saying, even if you find what I did was a violation of this person's rights, um, then I have immunity. I have no liability from my conduct unless there is a case that I should have been aware of something that had already um, been determined by a court where it was clearly established that what I did would deprive this person of a a clearly established right, then I'm off the hook. So there are are, are many, many times where police come up with new ways to violate people's rights that have never been clearly established in the past, where they uh, are allowed to simply walk free, uh, unscathed, um, with no consequences. Uh, that has to completely end. And and the movement towards um, getting rid of qualified immunity is already underway. You've seen that in Colorado this past summer on Juneteenth, um, in a very decisive move, actually created a state law that allows you to sue in state court as opposed to federal court and allows a plaintiff to bypass qualified immunity um, completely. The police are not allowed to assert it as a defense at all in Colorado. And as you see, Colorado is, is so much more progressive than many, many states in so many different ways. And they're getting things right um, and they're reaping the benefits. And I think people, uh, you know, states all over the country, at least at least the blue states, the Biden states, uh, will, will likely uh, see this example and look to figure out ways to, to emulate it and, and to improve upon it if possible. And and you even see it here in our fourth uh, federal circuit um, that that, that uh, governs Maryland and and Virginia and North Carolina. Um, Recently, a a decision was passed uh, for a case that happened in 2013 uh, that dealt directly with qualified immunity. And the court in that case um, made a decision that even though uh, a defendant, the, the plaintiff in that case, um, had been armed. He was armed with a knife um, and the officers uh, recognized the knife, stepped back and shot him 22 times and killed him. Oh my God. Yeah. And the the courts have been weighing this case over for seven years and had been up on appeal for the third or fourth time um, this time. And the court said in this situation that um, despite the fact that he was armed, he was incapacitated He was subdued. He was ultimately uh, in custody. They basically said, you know, seven years later, we we are asked to decide whether it was clearly established. And we get back to that clearly established concept that five officers could not shoot a man 22 times as he lay motionless on the ground. Although we recognize that our police officers are often asked to make split split second decisions, we expect them to do so with respect for the dignity and worth of black lives. I read that this summer and I got chills in my bones and I still right now just reading it, um, literally get a chill through my spine because I've, I've never heard the court use such strong, equitable language right. um, in my eight years and a half years of practice and you know three years of law school before that. You know, this is some of the strongest, most powerful language for black people. Uh, for people of color that I've ever seen come out of, uh, you know, a federal judge's uh, mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, they went on to say before the ink dried, uh, the investigation into George Floyd had been opened by the, by the FBI. And they said, this, had to, this has to stop. 
you know, this fear-based use of deadly force has to stop. Um, so qualified immunity, absolutely, you know, if we can get rid of qualified immunity, that will go a long way. Right. Um, there are other things that can happen, you know, licensing of police officers. I honestly think paying police officers more money and attracting better candidates would be, you know, something that we can do to thwart this unnecessary police violence. I think it really comes down to people um, being able to identify with other people, having worldly experience, um, and really having thoughtful judgment. Agreed. I couldn't agree with you more. And the hope that I have is that maybe 10 years ago, prison reform wasn't a thought in certain places. Now everyone's talking about prison reform, no matter if you're red or blue. And I'm hoping that due to all the work that people like you are doing on the ground, that we will have a conversation where police reform is a conversation that we can have across all states and we can actually make real actionable steps. And one of the things I admire about you is not only your lawyering skills, but the fact that you are truly embedded in your community and have created organizations to ensure a better outcome for our community. I know recently you just launched a new organization. Can you tell us about it and what was the catalyst? Absolutely. So I, I wouldn't say that I launched it. I, I would say, uh, number one, my my very good friend and colleague, and she's going to kill me. She, she's a yogi and she is absolutely just fierce. Mm. I mean, this young lady, she has been, you know, just a ride or die since we were in law school back 10 years ago. We served on the Black Law Students Association together on the executive committee. Um, and ever since then, you know, Tierra Gregory has just been a rock star, uh, a stand for Black people um, here in Baltimore. Um, and so she established what we've now called uh, Baltimore Attorneys for the Black Agenda, BABA for short, back right out of George Floyd. Um, I think it was that event mm -hmm. that urged her to you know, make a call for action. And so we've organized a group of, you know, over 50 Black lawyers, most of them, you know, under the age of 50, I would say, um, who have been meeting on a fairly regular basis and figuring out action plans that we can undertake despite, you know, all of our busy, you know, work schedules and, and all the obligations that we have to make sure that we are unifying our collective talents and experience and knowledge to work for Black people in Baltimore. So, you know, we're just getting started. We've, we've done some early initiatives of just organizing and, and kind of formulating our kind of mission. Um, we were able to have a sit down with our with our group and, and my OG, uh, Billy Murphy, uh, my, my senior colleague, my senior founding partner at Murphy Firm. And, and we kind of hashed it out. You know, we defined the Black agenda you know, we came up with some action items. And one of the first things that we went in action on was a voting rights and voter push initiative that um, we kicked off in September, uh, in late September, leading up to the election. So we actually had a couple of lawyers boots on the ground in Philadelphia. We picked Pennsylvania um, as, a, as a battleground state, um, as a place where we could help the vote and also potentially answer um, voting questions, voting uh, election law questions uh, mm. at voting sites in, in Philadelphia. And we've also been working on just what I was discussing earlier, um, how we as lawyers can use our position to influence the legislature um, and the folks that um, are going to be making decisions about police reform. So 
you know, we helped to pen a, a letter to, you know, the legislators in Annapolis uh, about our positions on LEOBR and the Maryland Public Information Act. And we also have more initiatives coming up as the legislative session uh, is about to get started. We're also looking for partnerships for organizations in, in Baltimore. We already mm-hmm. um, are, are close partners with the folks at Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Those are my guys, Adam and Davon. Um, they they really um, have helped us to be able to um, grasp and understand what the advocates, you know, of people of color in this area are looking to accomplish. And they have been a great uh, liaison for us, you know, with legislators as well. But we also looking to just make more and more partnerships so that folks know that we are a resource to the people of Maryland, to the people of Baltimore. A few things you said that I wanted to quickly touch on were the fact that you all are creating an agenda and action items. And then you're also lobbying basically the legislative uh, branch to get some of these things done. And I don't think people understand how important that is, where we think things are just going to happen. But no, there's normally a coalition of people who are behind these movements, who are knocking on those doors, who are building uh, relationships with folks, who are holding their elected officials accountable. And I'm so thankful that that's what you all in this group is doing. And I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. And it's important. Like, you know, who else is going to do it? Exactly. It's our time now, you know? Somebody has to be there to be the watchdog to say, are you thinking about this? Are you thinking about the folks in 21215? Are you thinking about the folks uh, in 21217? Are you thinking about the folks in 21213? Um, because if not, then no one else is going to speak up for us. Mm-hmm. I-, I couldn't agree more. Malcolm, I've truly enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for helping us understand what happened to William H. Green and what needs to occur to prevent instances like this from occurring in our society. Today, we touched on police-involved shootings and the reforms needed in the law. My final question to you is, why do you think it's important for the listeners to understand how the law or legal system works? Because these are your rights. They are uh, inalienable rights. Um, Nobody can take them from you. Um, You deserve them. And each of us deserves to have our rights regarded the same way. And if you don't know the parameters, the depths of your rights, then the government is going to trample on them in some way, shape or form at some point. And if not you, someone that you know, you know, life is precious. Each of us only gets one and we are all connected to so many different people. And it is a travesty that William Green is not here with us today, Mm -hmm. you know, It is a travesty and a preventable travesty. If more people knew that police laws needed to have been reformed in 2015, in 2010, William Green would probably still be here today. That's why it's important, because we all have a voice. And if our collective voices grow loud enough, it won't take, you know, 43-year-old father of two uh, who was loved by all being slain in the streets by someone we were supposed to trust to serve and protect uh, in order to make some real uh, substantial change for our for our communities. Thanks, Malcolm, for spending time with us. I'm truly looking forward to even more great things for you in the future. But before we sign off, can you let the listeners know how they can get in touch with you and your firm? Absolutely. Um, number one, Amber, you are awesome. Uh, I, I love uh, everything that you've been up to. Um, you really show uh, a set a great example of 
of what it means to live life unabashedly <laughs> um, and, you know, um, understand that, you, you know, your potential is way more uh, than you could ever imagine. And no one should ever be able to put limitations on you. So I, I, I respect and honor uh, you today and, and appreciate you for bringing me on this platform. You, you can contact me again uh, at my law office, which is Murphy Falcon and Murphy. Some people know it as the Murphy firm. Some people know it as the house that Billy Murphy built. Um, uh, but I just know it as the place I spend most of my time, or at least pre-COVID. Um, right. <laughs> um, you can call us at 410-951-8744. You can also reach me at malcolm.ruff at murphyfalcon.com. I'm on social media on Facebook is my regular name on uh, IG. I'm brother underscore Malcolm 410. And uh, I- I'm all over the place. So just Google me. And definitely I'll be up to something big uh, real soon. Oh, most definitely. I got a lot of police brutality cases in the pipeline. I'm excited about one on the Eastern Shore right now. Um, and when it makes some more uh, progress on that, I'm definitely going uh, keep you posted. Please do. And for those who are listening, everything he just mentioned will be in the show notes. So make sure you check those out. Malcolm, thank you so much. No, thank you, my dear. You're the best. Well, guys, you've reached the end of another episode of the AI Decodes the System podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you'll receive the newest episode every week. Now, if you love this episode of AI Decodes the System, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The data from reviews and ratings helps more people get access to the show, so we need your help. And thank you so much in advance. Remember to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and now Clubhouse with the handle AI Decodes. That's A-I-D-E-C-O-D-E-S. Join us next week as we decode the system one podcast episode at a time.